Hey Jude, February 26, 1970, episode 18. Hey Jude. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Galker, along with that Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. Today, we are chatting about Hey Jude, the album. Before we get into the show, we have some housekeeping notes to talk about, and then we get right into it. I have a podcast. It's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is an interview podcast. Uh, I've had it for about four years. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues. It's not really about Baltimore, but we do feature some Baltimore artists. Please subscribe, and the link is in the show notes, because we want you to be a part of that Be More music scene. The Beatle guru is Brooke Halpin, and he's all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles. He sweats the Beatle DNA. you got to follow him on his Facebook page, Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin, and that link is also in the show notes. We want you to be involved. Uh, obviously, you're listening, so you have some kind of interest we want you to go to one on our Facebook page. It's called The Beatles Come to America Facebook page. And we want you to rank The Beatles U.S. albums from best to worst. And trust me, it takes a little time. We hope you subscribe, participate, and enjoy. And just remember, we love The Beatles, so love us in our comments. And enjoy our other creative projects. It's The Beatles Come to America, episode 19. It's Hey Jude, the album. Hey. <laughs> don't make it bad hello tom it's the beatles come to america i have the beetle guru right in front of me it's brooke halpin and it is the hey jude album it is a big mess it's a compilation but a good mess do you remember buying this or did you even bother back in 1970 this album came out February 26, 1970, not long after Abbey Road. Abbey Road was so popular when it came out that people were still listening to it as we got into 1970. And then when we heard about this album, I should say when I heard about this album, and it was a collection of singles which I already had, and furthermore, Can't Find Me Love and I Should Have Known Better. Not only did I already have them as singles, but I already had those two songs on a Hard Day's Night album by United Artists. So to me, this was nothing more than Alan Klein, and this was his doing, by the way. It was Alan Klein, you know, milking the Golden Beetle franchise. And I, as much as the songs, of course, are, are wonderful, there's nothing wrong with the songs, but to put them together and put it out as an album, I, I'm very, very disappointed with this move. And I'm quite sure that the Beatles had nothing to do with it at this time because they were broken up. They were all working on their individual recordings. Paul was finishing up his first solo album. John had already released songs with the Plastic Ono Band. He had just released We All Shine On, right? Instant Karma. So he was already working with this new band. They had nothing to do with this album, and it shows. And they couldn't even, this stupid people who, who put it together, by the way, this guy named Alan Steckler, who worked for Alan Klein at Alan Klein's company, Abco, which stood for Alan and Betty Klein Company. I mean, they couldn't even get the sequencing right. You look on the back of the album, 
and they have a list of songs, but they're not in order of what's on the disc. I mean, how ridiculous is that? They couldn't even get that together because they didn't care. You know, and you can be sure that if the Beatles had anything to do with it, that stuff wouldn't have happened. It never happened on any Beatle album, you know. So the whole thing, while the songs are great, no, I didn't buy it because I didn't want it. I didn't want it. I didn't need it. I do have it in my hand, though, because one of my girlfriends left the album with me, you know, way back some years ago, and I'm looking at it right now. And this is photos from the Beatles' last photo session taken on August 22nd, 1969. So were these photos taken specifically for this album? No. Beatles got together because they were, they were breaking up, and they thought, well, we might as well have one more photo session. So that's why they put these photos on the album. So I know this album is near and dear to you because it was the first Beatle album that you purchased when you were a young lad. And I'm sure that has really nice positive feelings for you. But for me, this is this is ridiculous. I, I really don't like it at all. Alan Klein created a contract that he would give one compilation per year. That's ridiculous. Like, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> they said that the back cover photo was supposed to be the front. Supposed to be the front cover, yeah. and the front cover is supposed to be the back cover. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. The listing of tracks are all wrong. But then it, it hit number two, and it, it sold uh, two times platinum. It also, I mean, it's been out of print since 1980. It's the pictures. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The pictures to me are very sad and melancholy, and it's it, yeah, it, it's all over. It's yeah. all it's the all over photo. Yeah, yeah, it's really if you think the Let It Be album cover is kind of dreary and and sad, this is even more. The reason that this album has significance to me is yes, yeah, when I was a little kid, I was KTL Records and also uh, Sesame Street Records, and but my first adult album that I got was Hey Jude because that song was on the radio. This was like a, a great introduction to the Beatles because it had early Beatles and then it runs right into the current Beatles. Like I, I couldn't believe Can't Buy Me Love was coming from the same band that had Ballad of John and Yoko. Felt really adult at six years old to have my first uh -huh. Beatles. It was Hey Jude that brought me there and then the rest of the songs I fell in love with later. Yeah, I have affinity for it, but at the same time we talked about not even doing this one and I'm like, oh, I'm okay. It doesn't really make it doesn't really make sense. It was a hit. Uh, it wasn't even called Hey Jude at the time. They were going to call it something else like The, the Beatles called The Beatles again was the work, working yeah. title. Oh, uh, just one note that I had is that look at that picture and just in a matter of 6 years what a difference they looked, you know, from oh. the mob tops and to, oh. to what they now, they look just worn out. The first song is uh, Can't Buy Me Love. Let's talk about it. By the way, I'm looking at the, the photo, the, the cover right now, and, and John and George look like old hippies. Yeah, like really, like, like it's a, not a good look. Like they're mount living on the mountains and, and, you know, they're hillbillies or something. John has like a, it almost looks like a woman's shirt on or whatever. And it's just really, it's weird. And then I'm always yeah. wondering whose hat is that on the, the statue? Oh, I know whose it is. It's George's. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because George wore a hat during, for these photo sessions. And if you were to do research and find out Beatles' last photo session, you'll see George uh, wearing a big black hat. And he just took it off for this photo and put it on the statue. What is the deal with above? You know, they're... 
yeah. in, a, in a forest or looking up and holding. It's, right, right. Well, that to me is the best part of the, <laughs> of the album. It's just really <laughs> odd that it's there, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, that's you know that's Beatley. Uh-huh. I mean, that's the most Beatley thing mm-hmm. in terms of an album, really. I, I'd like it, to have that, 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 that as the album cover. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. no, it's very cool. They're, they're all looking up, except for it's like Ringo's not looking up for some reason. Why did Ringo? Why aren't you looking up? But no, that's an, an interesting photo. So at least they had the creativity and the imagination, which was really nice, to put that above the John's door because this is John's house, by mm-hmm. the way. It's 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 <laughs> really. I was like, okay, well, I like that picture more than I like any others, and the. If they went for the the backside, I don't. I think that's a very typical like look for bands in the '60s and early '70s. That whole sprawled out on the on a lawn and take a picture for a photo for an album. All right, so let's dig in. This could be pretty easy. It might not be, but uh, first one is "Can't Buy Me Love." It was uh, released on March 16, 1964, and the B side was "You Can't Do That." It was number one for five weeks. Sound scan said it was the biggest jump ever, uh, 21 to 1, and it, it broke that record until 1991. Rolling Stone had uh, this ranked as the 295th song of all time, greatest songs of all time. And Michael Buble did a fantastic version of this recently that kind of reinvigorated the song. i get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Cause I don't care too much for money Cause money can't buy me love We have to, and this is the thing that I don't like about that But we have to put it in the song in context That yes, it was a huge hit when? In 1964 What was going on with the Beatles in 1964? It was Beatlemania raging So yeah, and of course this song was one of the songs that they used in the movie A Hard Day's Night. So it's like, of course it's a great song. We already talked about it. We talked about it when we did the Hard Day's Night album. And it's a great song, and I don't, you know, I I don't really need to repeat myself. I mean, if you're listening, if you're following the series, folks, be sure to catch what Tom and I had to say when we talked about the Beatles a Hard Day's Night album, because that's really where this song came from. That's where it belongs. And it's 1964. It's the Beatles during their Beatlemania heyday. And that's all I have to say about it. And the same thing with I Should Have Known Better. You know, we talked about that. It's in the movie. We talked about how it was used in the movie. You know, it's, I love a, I Should Have Known Better. But then again, you know, it's it's something that's, that we heard in 64, and we heard it as a single, and we heard it on the album from the, <clears throat> from the Hard Day's Night album. So if you want to say anything about a hard, uh, excuse me, I should have known better, please, my, by all means do, but I, I've i already done that. <laughs> that was Alan Klein, who disconnected Brooke Halpin from the call because he was not saying nice things about the Hey Jude album. All right, we're going to number three, which is Paperback Writer, and that was released on May 30th, 1966. It was number one for two weeks. Paul was requested by Auntie Lil to write a song that wasn't about love, and that's what he came up with. There's great remakes of this by Chris Christopherson, the Bee Gees, Floyd Kramer, Eric Johnson. Paperback Writer 
paperback writer. There's a video made for this that I think stands the test of time along with Rain. It was back to back. I'm not in love with the lyrics, but I love the music of this song. I think the music. You don't like the lyrics? The story about a writer it's about a, trying to get his it never, book published? Never personally connected with me, but that's okay. You know, it's not. Yeah. I don't really care about the paperback writer. He didn't really. Oh, <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't really seem to um, move me. But yeah. when I was six years old, I knew all the words. I told you this before, but I knew all the words to this. So my sisters would pin me down, play the song, and watch my my mouth move as I sang all the words, and they were amazed that i knew them all you know at six years old they thought that was really cool well that's impressive yeah that's a weird memory of this song maybe it was a negative i don't know i have to get therapy for that you know so paperback (laughs) writer it's okay but boy i really love the music the bass it's in and the background vocals i guess what i'm saying is it's a really good song it's not my one of my favorites. That's all, and uh, I think, and it's also from the Revolver album, you know, the Session. And I could see this being on the Revolver and, and getting away with it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned it because it has a similar sound to "She Said She Said." The guitar is sounding the sound of the guitars. Paperback writer and the sound of the guitars, and she said, she said. Are very, very similar. I like this song very much. And by the way, if you excuse me, I happen to be a paperback writer. And it was nice to hear something different, you know, rather than she loves you and and she loves you again and everybody loves everybody. You know, it was different, definitely different. And the the harmonies, the vocals, right from the very beginning, is so wonderful. It was a new sound because the vocals are overlapping each other. And then they have that, right, paperback writer, you know, the echo. Right. Paperback writer. Paperback writer. Which was really exciting. Also, this was the first time that the bass, Paul's bass, was boosted, okay? Because they were complaining, especially Paul was complaining that the bass was not as good as some of the bass sounds coming out of Detroit, you know, with Motown, the Motown records, which they were listening to. So it was Jeff Emmerich, it was idea. This was the first example of it, where Jeff took a speaker and use the speaker as a microphone, which is brilliant. I mean, nobody was doing stuff like that. The lead guitar riff is played by Paul and George. John doesn't play any guitar on this, which is very, very unusual. I don't understand why not. You know, why didn't John play guitar on Paperback Rider? I don't know. To me, that's very bizarre. All he did was he just did background vocals and tambourine. 
a limited a limited role in this song. And the other thing that's really neat is that during the last verse, do you know what George and John are singing? Now, how did you know that, Tom? Did I tell you that already? Oh, no, no. I knew that a long time ago. And it's the same oh, with, did. Oh, with, with girl impressed. in the background. They, yeah. they did tit. Tit, tit, tit. Oh, well, that's tit, a whole tit, other tit, situation. Tit. Yeah, that's a whole other situation. But yeah, so yeah, Fairy Shaka. Wow. What a great, what a, again, you know, who would ever think of doing something like that other than the Beatles? What does Fairy Shaka have to do with a paperback writer? Absolutely nothing. Does it sound great? Yes, it does. Again now, 66, recording Revolver. What are they doing? They're experimenting. This is the beginning of their experimenting period. So that would make sense. We're going to my favorite song of the Beatles of all time. So, Ooh, yeah, well, of yeah. all time. Of all Whoa. time. Yeah, it's, it's the B-side to Paperback Writer. Maybe that's why I feel like it was slighted. I think it should be flipped. I love this song, and I love it because every band member gets to be featured and to um, show how, how great they are. The drumming is fantastic. Ringo actually said it was the best drumming he's ever done, which I think is awesome. Right. Yeah. John's voice is fantastic. And I love the whole backward masking in the back. Guitars are slowed down and they're very trippy and they're awesome. And then you got Paul's bass line that is ripping through the whole song. I love the lyrics. I just love this song. Rolling Stone ranks it 463 of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It peaked at number 23, and there's a lot of covers out there. U2, Pearl Jam, Coolest Shaker, Grateful Dead. When the rain comes, This is not just my favorite Beatles song. This is my favorite song of all time. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that, that says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> now, let's back up a bit. You said that someone had rated this 400 and something or other on a list of 500. Rolling Stone magazine uh, ranked it 463 out of the 500 greatest songs of all time. They were out of their friggin' minds. Are you, can you believe that? That's absolutely insane. Are you saying it's low or high or shouldn't even be on there? Oh, come on. This is, I agree with you that this is one of the best songs ever. Oh, good. Oh, my God. Thank you. Now, look at these stupid <laughs> people at Rolling Stone just because it's old, the Rolling Stone said so. I don't give a shit what they say. That's ridiculous. You know, they have no credibility. You know, when they do something like that, I lose complete respect for them. I mean, come on. What are they, deaf? It must be maybe only one ear is working or something. I mean, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard today. Please. Yeah. Five, this, is, this, this is genius. Go ahead, sorry. This is genius song, in my opinion. It is genius song. Yeah. 400 and whatever the hell it is. I can't even, I don't even want to remember how stupid it is. Gee whiz, don't get me going. <laughs> I put myself out there with this one, and I'm happy that you feel the same way. The only thing I would love to see happen is when it slows down and there's like a little Paul solo with a bass 
Would, with Ringo, it says Paul and Ringo, the little solo before I would, the last, before the ending. Yeah, I would have loved to see like maybe like a couple more beats. Yeah, yeah. Lo- let's just make it a little longer. Make Bec- it a little longer beca- yeah. because it's so compelling. I mean, it's a perfect so song. Good. Yeah, but I was like, mm, you know, I could could jam out a little more about that sound, but you know, wow, what, a, what everyone, everyone shines to the highest level in this song. The whole creativity is at its peak, I think. Well, there's a n- number of co- couple of things that, that I wanted to mention about this. Yes, everything about it is fantastic. Paul's bass, <laughs> oh God, Paul's bass in this song, it's like the, his bass line, Tom, is lead. It's the lead instrument. If you listen to the song, which of course you have, the bass is the lead. It, it's more prominent than the guitars, for God's sake, because that was part of boosting up the bass during these we recorded these two songs. And his choice of notes is just and the sound. It, you can't. You, I, don't, I don't know anybody who could do what they did in '66, like the Beatles did with Rain. Okay, the bass line again. What he does the first. The first time he plays the the bass line during the chorus. Rain, right? He's pedaling the same note. When he when they repeat it the second time, he's going he's playing triplets. I mean, this is just genius. It's just genius. My God. Is one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs as well. And the whole thing about the backwards bit, now this is controversial, so we need to talk about it. John said that when he got the tape, you know, back then they would either get acid tapes, which were pressings on a, on a disc, or they would give them tape, actual tape on a reel, right? Usually when you got the reel when you got a tape on a reel, it was you would get it, and it was called Tales Out, which means it needed to be rewound to hear it from the beginning. But John, and he said this a number of times, even as late as 1980, he was so stoned out after being in the studio, you know, he got home like 4 o'clock in the morning, and he couldn't wait to hear it, and he put the tape on, so that the tape played backwards. So that he heard the ending of the song being played backwards to his tape recorder, stoned out of his gourd, and he got all excited about it, and he went back the next day and said, Hey, lads, this is it. You know, let's put this on the end of the, end of the song.
George Martin says that's not the case. George Martin says, oh, well, you know, that's something I did. I came up with that, and I thought it was something that John would like. Well, why would George Martin lie about it, which is very strange? But on the other hand, this sounds like exactly what John would do. So it's very bizarre, and, and it's been one of those Beatle mysteries, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, um, I took the ending of the piece where it's backwards at the very end, and what it is, is John, the beginning of John singing the first verse. That's what it is. It's not anything other than that, and I've read about other people saying, oh, no, no, it's just part of the song. No, no, no. It's the very beginning that is at the end that they put backwards at the end. The beginning of the first verse is backward at the end of the song. The other thing which I find to be fascinating, and I don't know whose idea this was, I'm going to guess it was John's, is that when you look at the sleeve for the single, Rain and Paperback Rider, this is the only time where you will see George Harrison and John Lennon playing left-handed guitars. So not only did they do a backwards thing at the end of the song, then they also reversed the photos <laughs> to make them look like they're playing left-handed. Very funny. Very brilliant. You know, I'm, I'm quite sure that that was a, a, a deliberate and conscious creative move. Fascinating. Just the parallel, you know, the backward element at the end of the song. We go right into Lady Madonna, which the backside was Inner Light, which would have been fun to have that song on this album. It was March 15, 1968, number one for two weeks. It is a tribute to Fats Domino. Fats did a, a version of it really quickly, and it became a top 100 hit, which was his 77th U.S. chart hit, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lady Madonna, it is ranked 86 of 100 for the Beatles' best songs from Rolling Stone. 1968 was very volatile. This was kind of a return to the roots kind of sound. This song, again, context, right? Prior to this, we were listening to Magical Mystery Tour album, Hello, Goodbye, and I Am the Walrus. Now, I Am the Walrus is one, in my opinion, the most advanced, sophisticated song ever written by the Beatles. I'll go that far, okay? It is just absolutely brilliant, a synthesis of rock and pop and electronic and music on cred and a mixture of all these phenomenal things that John Lennon was able, was able to create. So then all of a sudden, we're hearing a boogie-woogie piano going on and a rock and roll song. And it was like, like you said, this is, was a total surprise. And I remember hearing this when it came out in March of 1968. And it, to me, it was a message. Oh, okay, we're going to go back to rock and roll because the Beatles, obviously listening to this, compared to Magical Mystery Tour and Pepper, you know, which came out not that long uh, not that uh, long before, we you know when that came out, the summer of 67. So 
all of a sudden, it's rock and roll again. All right, okay, we're going to do rock and roll for a while now. And it's a Paul song. I mean, this is Paul all the way. And by the way, we should mention, you know, that uh, it's a great song. And the, the, the bridge is fascinating because the bridge is actually, it's a walking bass line. Brilliant. And it's paralleling at the same time it's playing with the left hand of the piano. You know, what a fantastic sound that is. I like the bridge more than, I mean, the whole song is great, but that bridge really stands out. It did then when I first heard it, and it still does now. And John and George both play lead guitar. What they're doing is they're playing the same riff on their electric guitars. And then the two saxophones, the two tenor saxes and the two baritones saxes, then they play the riff as well. Now, there were some problems during this recording, and the problems were that rather than George Mark, who, as we know, nine times out of ten, did arrangements for the studio musicians who came in to record on a Beatles recording, he did not do an arrangement so that when they came to the studio, particularly Ronnie Scott, who was a big shot in London because he owned a jazz club and he had a big following. Ronnie and the other players were like, well, what the hell's going on? There was no arrangement for them. So it was like Paul was was vague, supposedly. So that's why they just ended up just playing the riff. You know, once they heard John and George playing the guitar riff, they just simply doubled it. Then when you get to the instrumental section, which is, by the way, the instrumental solo played by Ronnie, okay, on his tenor sax. The solo is over the bridge. Now, during the bridge, we have George and John. What are they doing? They're doing da 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 They're imitating brass instruments. And John and George's voices, when they did the mix, are louder than the saxophone solo. Usually, when you have a solo, the solo is the featured instrument in the song, and it's louder in the mix. So, Ronnie was very disappointed when he heard the final mix of the song. And also, furthermore, what John and George are doing, it kind of conflicts, it conflicts, there's a conflict going on musically with what John and George are doing and what Ronnie's doing. So I think that there should not have been a sax solo. Either you have John and George doing your bits, which is really funny. You know, they're having fun doing that, which adds a lot of fun and, and a great feeling to the song, especially given the subject matter. 
you know, this is the lyrics are not very happy. <laughs> not, these are not happy lyrics for Mr. Paul McCartney, by the way. So I would not have had the sax solo, or you do the sax solo and you don't include John and George. You do one or the other. But when you put them together, it just, you know, I mean, it bothers me a little bit. It, it just doesn't work musically, okay? You can say it works because it's the Beatles. Yeah, okay, I get that. But one or the other. The other thing that makes it really interesting is Ringo. He does two drum tracks. The first one is he's just doing brushes on a snare, which gives the song a very uplifting, bright, bouncy, snappy sound that goes along perfectly with the bright, bouncy piano part. And then he also does a complete drum kit track. So it was a huge hit, as you had mentioned. And again, lyrics were something that we uh, I didn't expect at the time, you know, about a woman trying to make ends meet, and she's got a baby at her breast, and, you know, that kind of bit, and she's working, and, you know, oh, you know the lyrics, anyhow. So the lyrically, it's a, it's a surprise. and But the music offsets the unhappy lyrics. It's an interesting mix of lyrics. It's almost like, in a way, Tom, you could say that this was the new Eleanor Rigg, you know, in a way. You know, it's about this woman who's having difficulty trying to raise her children, trying to make ends meet, and all that stuff. And, but yet, it's contrasted with the very upbeat and bright. I agree with you about the... uh... But but I I think that as a fan, I don't think anyone remembers the sax part. You know, they everyone. No, it's so it's so low you can barely hear it. Yeah, I I think as a whole, you know, everyone when they think of the song will sing this just as a part of the lyrics. Revolution, and it's the B side to Hey Jude. And if you think about it. What an amazing, you know, 45. Uh, great covers by Thompson Twins, Stone Temple Pilots. Hey! Mojo Records ranked this number 16 of the 101 greatest songs of all time. Rolling Stone ranks this number 13 of the best songs of all time, which is pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> Nina Simone really had problems with the lyrics. You're going to tell me why you're laughing. Do something. Anything. And then Nike paid a half a million dollars to have this yes, song. Yes, I know. From, I know. From 1987, and at that yeah. point, the money went right to Michael Jackson. So they, <laughs> they, they, yeah, that's right. Fans were afraid that, you know, now that Michael Jackson has the catalog, that he was exploiting, you know, the coffers of the Beatles, and Yoko approved of this. The other two did not, but Yoko thought it was a good way to take John's work and show it to a whole new generation. So there was a little, little controversy when it comes to the song, I love this song. It's actually probably one of my top ten songs. Uh, what can I say? I love the lyrics. I love the uh, the, the jam of it all. I, I think it's pretty wild. It, to me, is almost like a heavy metal song where it gets me pumped up just like a heavy metal song would. I wanted to address the controversy which occurred when Yoko went ahead and did the deal with Nike. I remember that vividly in, uh, I think it was 87. 86, 87, somewhere around there. And I was I was outraged. I thought it was despicable. I thought it was disgusting. It's like, for God's sake, does Yoko and the Beatles, do they need more money? No, they don't. And to take this song, 
which is about what was happening in the US and the UK and parts of Europe. The seriousness of what John created lyrically, song about social change and revolution, and to use it with stupid friggin' sneakers? What the hell is that? I, I hate it. I mean, that's disgusting to me. I'm sure John would have been, I mean, John would never have allowed that. Terrible move. Absolutely disgusting. You can tell I hate it, Tom. But I've, the song I've, I've never heard this language from you before. However, let's let's back this up. I, I remember the vi- the the uh, the commercial, and it was tasteful. It was not a bad representation of the song. The visuals were good. Um, it brought a lot of attention to Nike. I th- I think it was a good song. It's the first time that the Beatles were used to sell a product, I, I believe. And that's the, you know, the connection. Now, I mean, we're looking at, you know, years oh, later, well, no. you, you know, they're a Good Day Sunshine and... and uh, oh, I know. Here no, comes I the know. Sun. It's, wide, it's wide open now. Yeah. yeah. It's gone, it's gone, yeah. But this was the first one. And again, this song lyrically has absolutely nothing to do with Nike sneakers. Nothing to do with it. There's no connection whatsoever. So let's move on, if you don't mind. <laughs> yep, let's move it. The song starts off with this blistering, distorted guitar riff. John and George ripping it. I mean, they're just ripping it. It's like, oh my God, what is this? This was a new sound for the Beatles in 1968. You know, it's a fat, fuzzy, distorted guitar part. And then John is the one who does the opening scream. A lot of people think it's Paul, but it's actually John who does it. The Paul only plays bass and he does do the you know the background vocals. And then we have someone other than the Beatles and other than George Martin. Now we know that historically that George Martin played a lot of keyboards with the Beatles, don't we, Tom? We know that as we've gone through some of the tracks and some of the albums. George Martin played piano, he played organ, he played harpsichord, etc. But no. It's Nicky Hopkins, who was a very popular London keyboard player at the time. He was working with the Rolling Stones and, and many other groups. So that was a first. Let's face it, I mean, the lyrics are... You know, we all want to change the world. Yeah, I mean, that's really, in 1968, to hear a lyric like that was quite, quite shocking. But then John says on the single, talk about destruction, you can count me out. Now, this time he says out. But as we talked about when we did the Watt album, and we talked about Revolution 1, when he did that, he said, you can count me out. In, because when he did the vocals that day, <laughs> he wasn't sure if he was in or out with the revolution. But on the single, oh boy, it's loud and clear that he's, he wants to be out about the destruction. <laughs> 
He was doing, you know, he started to do all the peace things. Not quite. Of course, they really blew up more with Yoko, of course, in 69 with Give Peace a Chance and all that. Between, you know, when this song first came out with Hey Jude, the juxtaposition of the two songs, to me, were very extreme. And I didn't like the harshness, and I did not like the distortion of the guitars. I didn't back then. I favored by far Hey Jude, which was more soothing. Take a sad song and make it better. It's going to be all right. You know, and just piano and whole other mood entirely. That's my feeling on, on Revolution. Okay, so I'm, I'm the same way. I thought it was really heavy when I first heard I mean, obviously I was six years old, so that was heavy. But yeah. as time passed, have you feel more accepting of the song or loving it for what it is? Or you still feel a little put off by it? I can appreciate it now more now than I did when I heard it back in 68. In 68, I really, I didn't like the sound of the song. I preferred the mellowness and the slowed down version of Revolution 1 on the White Album. I preferred it by far over this version back then in 68. When FM radio had rock stations, like now they're different, but... This would be on heavy rotation throughout the years, like an oldie on heavy rotation. So you'd hear it all the time. So it was kind of like a rock anthem, like like a Motley Crue or something that would fit in that format really, really close. We're going to flip this album over and we go right into Hey Jude. It's the first time that they use the eight track. It was number one for nine weeks. There's an influence of the Drifters in the song, Save the Last Dance for Me. There's a phenomenal promotional film that is really cool. It's the 16th Beatle number one. It was up for a Grammy for Best Record, Best Pop Performance by a Group and Duo, Best Song, and it lost to all of them. Uh, Rolling Stone, it's ranked number eight of the uh, 500 greatest songs of all time. Mojo calls it number 29. Wilson Pickett did a version of it. Uh, Elvis Presley did a version, and Katy Perry did a version of it. Hate you, hate you. This song, I I know everyone loves it, but after you know, basically. 50 years later. I, I'm a little overplayed by it. I think maybe it was because when I was six years old, I played the hell out of it. And But mm-hmm. it's a very skippable track at this point. I, I'm like, okay, I, I got the, my Hey Jude-ism in. I'm done. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. b- but I saw Paul in concert and I'm the first one going, no, 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 no. You know, like I'm excited about it. It's just worn its welcome out for me, but I don't dislike the song. Okay. Hey Jude. Context. Right. Last thing we heard from the Beatles was Lady Madonna. Oh, okay. We're going back to rock and roll, everybody. And then all of a sudden, I remember hearing this for the first time. I was I was in bed, relaxing with my transistor radio. And all of a sudden, Paul's voice came across on the speaker with the piano. And the song was going on about taking a sad song, making things better. And I was mesmerized. I was completely mystified. I was completely taken by this song. There is a magic and a power to this song, even though it's not a screaming rock and roll, blistering lead guitar song like Revolution. It is a very, very powerful song. It just so happened at that time that 
I was having some difficulty, great difficulty in a relationship with my girlfriend at the time. So this was Paul saying to me, hey, Brooke, it's going to be all right. Take the sad situation and make it better. So granted, I admit that I cannot remove that emotional component that occurred the first time I heard it was exactly when I needed to hear a song of this. Now, all of a sudden, prior to Hey Jude, and even though McCartney played the piano on Lady Man, you still had you still heard that great riff of those guitar riffs that George and John were playing. Now there's no guitar riffs. There's subtle guitar innuendo nuances that George fills in between Paul singing. This is a piano-centric song. Then we saw the David Frost video of the Beatles performing it, and there's Paul at a piano. He's not playing his bass. Now, back then, whatever the Beatles did when you were a Beatle nut, like I was, and I still am, whatever they did, I wanted to do. And that goes for millions of other kids back in the 60s. If you were in a band after you saw Age hey Jude, you wanted to play the piano. You didn't want to play your guitar anymore. That's how powerful, that's how much of an influence this song had on the music instrument industry. <laughs> Everybody had to get their hands on electric pianos and keyboards and because Paul played the piano on Hey Jude. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Yes, they went to Trident. They didn't record this at Abbey Road because Trident had an A-track. And Abbey Road at this time did not. So they went over and did it. And yes, it was nine it was nine weeks or number one. Nine consecutive weeks. So yes. This song was played constantly on the radio during this time period. Every time you turned on the radio, it was because people wanted to hear it, because it was soothing. It gave people some solace to whatever it was, if any difficulty they were having in their lives. It, it, it's very, very meaningful, this song. And then you have a 36-piece orchestra coming in on the coda, of course, George Martin did that arrangement and conducted it. And what's also quite interesting is that Paul says, don't let me down. Hey, you don't let me down. Well, guess what? Soon we heard a song called, don't let me down. It's just kind of interesting. Again, I talk about this as you know, every now and then, how one beat will use some lyrics and then the same lyrics will show up in a song written by another Beatle. That's just an example. The ending coda, as they call it, or the out chorus, as some people call it, is longer than the verses, all the verses and the bridges put together. That's very, very unusual. Now, how were they able to do that without the song becoming boring? Because it would have. Well, what did they do? Paul used that na-na-na-na-na background chorus by him doing his scat improvisational vocals, which he hasn't done it since, and probably, you know, never will. And what he does vocally is phenomenal. Are you kidding me? So when you're listening to it, and you hear Paul doing these vocal bits, 
you know, between the na-na-na's. And by the way, there's there's like 35 people doing the na-na-na's along with with Paul, John, George, and Ringo. And, and so then, you know, you've got a huge chorus going on, the na-na-na chorus. And then Paul's in there, you know, screaming, and he's doing all these bits, which we know what he does. And the thing that kept it interesting was like, oh, gosh, listen to what he did. And then it didn't, every time it would come up for another little bit, he would do something different. And in doing so, he kept the ending fresh. That's why we can listen to that ending as long as it is and stay with the ending because we didn't know what he was going to do with his vocal improvisation. Brilliant idea, masterpiece song. It was written, it was inspired by Julian Lennon. John had left Julian and Cynthia Lennon for Yoko at this point before they recorded it, before, obviously before Paul had finished writing the song. He goes out to visit Julian and Cynthia. He can see that the little boy is sad because his daddy's gone. And Paul says, and this is true, all this stuff, you probably know this. Paul's like, hey, Jules, you know, don't make it bad. It's going to be all right. Hey, Jules. So he figures, well, you know, hey, Jules, don't make it bad. Take a sad and he's going, oh, wow. Instead of hey, Jules, he changed it to hey, Jude, because he thought hey, Jude sounded better than Jules. So there's the inspiration for this masterpiece, and it is a masterpiece. And to your point about, well, have you heard it enough? I did for a while. I said, you know what, I've heard this enough. And But then every now and then, I want to hear it again. I've got to get my Hey Jude fix. And I play it, play it periodically on my show for that reason, because it's such an amazing song. The magic is still there, and I love it very, very much, and I always will. One of the things I listen for on this song is when John sings uh, When You Get Her, Get Her, like he's in the background. Remember, hey, to let her into your heart, then you can start to make it better. Yeah, John, John's little bits. Yeah, there's some little bits from John during during the song before it goes into the coda. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't sound like John. It's not old John. It's a new sounding voice of John. That's yeah. that I'm like, because initially I'm like, that's not John. That, I don't know who that is, but it's him. Okay, so we go right into Old Brown Shoe. It's the B-side yeah. of Ballad of John and Yoko. This is a quick recording. It was recorded in April 16th to the 18th. It was done really quick. And then it was released in May, so May yeah. 30th. So like yeah. a month and a half, it's ready to go. I uh, think it has a have thoughts about both Ballad and John and Yoko and Old Brown Shoe is that maybe if they spent a little more time, it wouldn't sound as rough. However, it has a cool demo culture to it that a lot of people do. It's a knockoff. John was doing this, ripping out singles. Uh, thoughts came out, recorded it. It's out as a single. This 45 represented the same thing where it's a quick thought, knockout. Here it is as a single. I like it. I don't love it. I think it's an excellent George Harrison song. And the guitar, the lead guitar riff, are you kidding? 
Claro, madre. fantastic guitar riff and you know george is playing the electric guitars plural organ and he's playing the bass tom on this some people say no it's not george it's paul no it's george you know george has said it repeatedly that he was playing bass and on the bridge the bass line is is nuts and he's doubling what he's playing on the electric guitar, which it makes sense that he would play the bass because he's simply doubling what he did on, on the electric guitar. Uh, John's only participation, again, there's no guitar playing with John on this track. He just, all, all John does, really, he doesn't do much at all. He's just doing the background vocals. But we do have Paul playing that great piano part. That's Paul playing a tack piano, you know, which is, you know, like they put, they actually take thumb tacks, you know what those are, and they actually push them into the heads, uh, of the hammers, excuse me, the hammers on the key, the hammers inside the piano, and the hammers are those are the things that hit the strings, so that when you put the, the tack, the tacks, you put them into the hammers, then it makes it much brighter, and thus you get the sound of a type of tack piano. Uh, it's a song about duality, opposites, which, you know, George is comfortable doing. And I think it's a great George song. I, I've always I've always liked this song. I, I kind of think it's it's underplayed and overlooked. And, and we have Don't Let Me Down, April 11, 1969, B-side of Get Back. Billy Preston is playing the, the organ. Hit number 35 at the time. And there's a lot of covers. Benny King, Annie Lennox, Matchbox 20, Garbage. This song has legs where through the years, people have really gravitated to it. It's actually like a, I, I think like a Hey Bulldog where it came out. It wasn't appreciated at the time, but boy, has it been appreciated now. Don't, don't let me down. Don't let me down. Okay, don't let me down. See, this is again the problem with this album. We'd already heard Don't Let Me Down as the B side to the Get Back single, which came out in early 1969. So it's like, okay, we've already heard this. All right. It's been released as a sing on the B side. Okay, now we're going to hear it again. And this song is 100%. John pleading. He's pleading emphatically and repetitively to Yoko. That's exactly what this is. Telling her, don't let me down. Again and again and again. Okay, got it. Now, the, the guitar riff is nice. And, you know, John and George play the, uh, the guitar riffs. Paul's bass line is really prominent. 
it might even be a bit much. I mean, it is really up there in the mix. It's great bass playing. I mean, it's choice of notes. It's brilliant. Great bass line. And it's uh, Billy Preston who plays electric piano on this. The, the thing that I find very fascinating musically about it is that uh, during the bridge part, I'm in love for the first time. First time. have George and Paul playing in, in, in very wonderful musical counterpoint. I mean, come on, that's, that's Beatle magic. They were still doing that, even though they were falling apart. That's one of my favorite bits about the song. Yeah, it's it's a very good song, but I mean that's you know that's uh, pretty much all I have to say about it. The uh, final song is uh, "Ballad of John and Yoko." It is John and Paul only song. Hit number eight, but it did go gold. You know, it's a skippable moment for me. It's not my favorite Beatles song. It's not a horrible song either. So it's not dreadful. I'm good not to listen to it. What's your thoughts? This is total autobiographical. This was what was going on in John's personal life with Yoko. He was just telling everybody what they were going through, which was true. Everything he says, all of the lyrics in this song are 100% true. These are the things that he and Yoko were doing at this time in their lives together. So if you were a fan of John and Yoko, then you're going to love this song. If you didn't like Yoko being with John, you're probably not going to like this song. The fact that it's Paul and John and not George is fascinating. I'll tell you why. Because George and John, at this time in the Beatle world, which is April 1969, George and John were closer than Paul and John. Paul and John were not getting along. Because Yoko had come so dramatically into the picture that, to a large extent, Yoko replaced Paul in terms of the close relationship. Let's face it, Paul and John, before Yoko, they were, you know, they were like twins. They were brothers. They were together all the time. They were... You know, they loved each other. I mean, they were they were they were very, very, very close. And then all of a sudden, it's like Yoko comes around and John boots Paul out, and now this Japanese woman has replaced him. Not as a songwriter, obviously, but at this point, John and Paul weren't writing any songs together. It's fascinating to me that that John wanted to do it with Paul for those reasons. And my understanding is is that. It was a great session, and I think it was great because they still really loved each other. I just think they they, they were happy, you know, to, to see each other again and to be back in the studio again. I mean, come on. They've been in the studio since, like, 1962, for God's sake. And it's hard to just delete all that. You know, you can't 
Forget all that history. It's not the Beatles, as you said. It's the Nurk twins, as they called themselves for a short period many, many years ago. It was just John and Paul. And Paul, happy again. You know, he loves to play the drums, you know. <laughs> so Paul's back on the drums and playing the piano and the bass and then singing along with, with John, doing the harmony. So they were able to tap into that early sound. And the song itself, in terms of the genre, talk about early Beatles, this is a throwback. This is rock and roll. You know, it's back again to rock and roll. So is it a great song? No, it's not a great song. Is it a good song? Yes, it's a good song. And again, for John being so ballsy, you know, John had no fear. I mean, for him to say, Christ, you know, it ain't easy and they're going to crucify him after the whole debacle that occurred in 1966 with his comment about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, and as a result, as you had mentioned, <clears throat> because of that, some stations refused to play it. So I'm glad they did it. It brought John and, and Paul back together again briefly. But then after this, you know, they did, of course, they worked together in the studio in Abbey Road later in 69. But in September, soon after this, that's when John had finally said, that's enough. I want a divorce. So I'm glad that they were able to get this done uh, with just the two of them. I think it's very sweet. That was just John and Paul, and I'm glad that they did it. So we have one more record to go. It's Let It Be, and with that, we'll close the chapter of The Beatles Come to America with, with the Beatles wow. guru. Wow. Isn't that something? What yeah. a trip it's been so far, my friend, really. It really has been quite a trip. Next episode, The Beatles, Let It Be. Now enjoy an original Brook Hopping composition, Hide Your Love Away. Stand head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on feeling two foot small. Everywhere people stare, each and every day. I can hear them laugh at me, and I hear them say, Hey, you've got to hide your love away. Hey, you've got to hide your love away. How can I? Even try, I can never win. Here and then, see and then, in the state I'm in. How could she say to me, love will find a way? Gather around all you clowns. Let me hear you say Hey, 
you've got to hide your love away. Hey, you've got to hide your love away. End of episode.